So today, we lit the candle of joy. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. This week was not a week that brought me joy. This week was not a week where it was easy for me to write these notes. This week, rather, was horrible. Between the onset of Steph's head cold and the gut punch feeling that I got not once but twice on Thursday um, upon learning that uh, two people who were very, very important to me had passed away, um, I've had a real hard time finding joy this week. It's It's been a rough week. Um, however, I will tell you, um, I know Steph is sitting at home right now, probably wrapped up in a blanket on the couch. Um, she would understand everything that I've gone through and would tell me that I need to go ahead and, and uh, suck it up and preach what God's Word says, whether I feel like it or not. Um, and I know for a fact that the two who passed, um, if either one of them were here, if both of them were here, I'd be in trouble. Um, but if either of them were here, they would tell me to focus on what Scripture says um, when we're having times of sorrow and grief, and that is to rejoice. So that's what we're going to do this morning, whether I feel like it or not. That's the great thing about joy is that it has nothing to do with our feelings and our circumstances. Joy is not happiness. Happiness can come out of joy, but joy is not dependent upon the circumstances that I'm in. So when we look at the candles that are up here burning, they're not just they're not just candles for the sake of having candles because it's the season and that's what we do. But each one of these represents hope and faith and joy that are marks of the Christian life. And so that's that's what we want to focus on today. That joy that we have when we see a baby smile with no fear for what the future holds. You remember those days of innocence? You know, I, I saw on Facebook somebody posted that the, the one thing I miss from my childhood the most is not paying bills. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, that's the gift that God wants us to have today, is that gift of joy. So um, we find ourselves again in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. If you haven't already gotten there, I ask you to turn to chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Um, This entire chapter, uh, I'll be honest with you, the book of Romans, one of my favorite letters that Paul wrote. I don't have a not favorite, I guess. I really like all of them because Paul was just a really good theologian. But but the book of Romans is probably at the top of the list. Um, This whole chapter is extremely important for the world that we live in today, uh, especially from verse 9 through the end of the chapter. My, uh, my particular copy of Scripture here um, has this particular passage marked out with the heading, Marks of the True Christian. This is how our life ought to look. This is what our life ought to be when other people look at it. So let me, let me start off by asking you this question. 
And by the way, the, the first, um, let's see, three verses, 9, 10, 11, 12, four verses, are what Tom read uh, this morning, uh, chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. Um, when you encounter people who make a claim to be believers, but they don't have anything to do with the church, or when you encounter people who are not believers, and you ask them why they don't come to church, what is the most commonly given answer? Because of the hypocrites in the church, right? I don't want to be where all those hypocrites are. Okay, well, that word hypocrite, surprise, 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 hypocrite is not a translated word. It's a transliterated word. We use the Greek word in English. Okay? Uh, it's a compound word, the Greek word. The first part is the, the uh, Greek word upo, which is spelled H-Y-P-O. Don't ask me, it's all Greek. Okay? Uh, but what that means, uh, that word upo means under. Um, so uh, another verse where you may run into this word, um, or this concept of under, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, guys, is the verse that tells us that we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church, right? And then I believe it's, it's verse 27 that says, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, right? That word submit is the Greek word upo tasso, which means to place yourself under authority. Tasso being authority, upo meaning under. So that's the idea there is to, to put something underneath something else. My hand is upo, the podium. Okay? The second part of the word for hypocrite comes from the Greek word krino, which means to distinguish or to think. Um, the, the word uh, hypocrite is somebody who fought, performs under a false pretense, an actor. In fact, the word hypocrite was the word for actor in ancient Greece. The people who did the plays on stage were hypocrites because they would put on a character and they would act under a false pretense. So that's where the word comes from, is an actor. What does that have to do with what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 12? Well, I'm glad you asked, even if you didn't. So when we look at verse 9, Paul tells the Roman church, and I'm going to read you the Greek words, because that first sentence there in, in verse 9, that very first, let love be genuine in English, is two Greek words, agape and hypocritos. Okay? Agape any prokritos, love, not hypocritically. Catch that? Love, not hypocritically. Let your love, your care for people, your fellowship, your togetherness, your desire for other people to have what is best, be real, not fake. It's not a show. It's not a false pretense. You don't walk in, you shouldn't walk into church 
and look at your brother and sister in Christ and say, hey, how are you doing? And not really want to know how they're doing. Okay? Let your love be real love. Now be honest, that's hard to do. Because we live in a society that really doesn't want to know how everybody's doing. I don't care how you're doing. Let me tell you about my day. Right? That's the world that we live in. I don't care how you're doing. My week has been horrible. Part of me really hates hearing the charge of hypocrisy levied against the church. And I don't hate it because it's false. (laughs) I wish I could hate it because it's false. I wish I could stand in somebody in front of somebody who says, I don't want to go to church with all those hypocrites. I wish I could stand there and say, but we're not. But the fact of the matter is, we are. We've earned that label. Let me give you some examples. 50 years ago, I had to be careful and do my math after that last Sunday night discussion that we had where we were talking about 30 years ago and I pointed out that was in in the 80s. Um, (laughs) That still hurts right right here. Um, 50 years ago, if an unwed woman who was a member in a church showed up at church and told people she was pregnant, she would be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, she would have been shuttled out that door so quick. Family would have pushed her off. She would have gone to visit an aunt somewhere, right? And may or may not have come back with a child. Either because somebody forced an abortion on her under the, you know, pretenses of, well, she lost the baby. Or they would have forced an adoption, but she would have been effectively shunned from the church community. Right? A married couple gets divorced. Disinvited from the fellowship of believers, regardless of the circumstances. An individual admits to struggling with same-gender attraction. You might as well break out the pitchforks and torches. That's the way the church acts. Instead of ministering to the people who need it, we we have a bad tendency of jumping from Matthew 15a, that's the first part of Matthew uh, 18, 15a, right to 18, 17b. Okay, now if you're familiar with Matthew 18, from, from 15 to 17, what we're dealing with is church discipline. That's where Jesus tells the disciples that if a brother or sister sins against you, then here's what you're supposed to do. And there's a a, a procedure for church discipline, right? Well, Matthew 18, 15a says, if your brother sins, and you stop there, and then 18, 17b is, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. See, we skip the rest of those verses. If somebody in the church sins, especially if it's a sin that hurts our sensibilities, if it's a sin that makes us uncomfortable, out the door. Get. Go on. 
we skip all of that part about the sin being against us, right? And we completely forget about that idea of trying to reconcile them and trying to bring them to a place of repentance. Because because Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to them one-on-one. And if they repent, then you've won back a brother. But if they don't, then you go with one or two witnesses. And if they repent, then you've won back a brother. If they don't, then you go to them with the leadership from the church. And there's a progression there. Before we get to, you treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. But we don't do that. We don't have a mind towards reconciliation, which is what Paul talks about here in the book of Romans. Uh, I believe it's in chapter 10 where he talks about the ministry of reconciliation that we have. Maybe not. I didn't look for it beforehand. It just came to my brain. Somewhere in the book of Romans, he talks about the ministry of reconciliation that we have, where we're supposed to be reconciling people together and reconciling people to God, right? Oh, forget that. See, we act like we want that big, nasty sin removed from our presence so that people don't think that we're saying it's okay for people to sin. In reality, what we're showing everybody is that we expect everybody to be perfect even while we ourselves are trying to get away with being unloving, unkind, and uncaring towards those who really need our love. And we wonder why people say, well, I don't want nothing to do with those hypocrites. All this out of two words in Paul's letter. Love unhypocritically. Make your love real. How do I know that's what Paul's talking about? Look at the context. Where does he go next? Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. So what is evil? Hypocritical love. Saying that we love people and showing that we don't. What is evil? Shunning people because their particular sin makes us uncomfortable. Chasing people out of the sanctuary of the Lord because of fear or prejudice or favoritism. Those are evil. Paul says, shun what is evil. Stay away from what is evil. Abhor what is evil. Hate it. Hate it utterly. I will bring this back to the word joy here in a minute. Trust me. Hate utterly that which is evil. Hold on to what is good. So what is good? If we're we're comparing good and evil, and we can see what evil is, then what is good? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Taking care of people the way you would want to be taken care of. So when the unwed mother comes into the church, you treat her the way you would want to be treated if you were in that situation. We have a bad, bad, bad nature. Now, if you've ever been in a conflict, 
with a significant other or a parent or a child, so that pretty much encompasses all of us, you, can, you, you will see something of yourself in this unless I'm like the only person on the face of the planet, right? So if somebody does something to me that hurts me, my natural inclination is to think the absolute worst of them, right? Well, you just don't care about my feelings. You didn't stop to think about how it was going to make me feel for you to do ABC, right? Or you're just spiteful and mean, and, and you did it because you did want to hurt me. But if I sin against the other person, I will come up with an entire encyclopedic volume of reasons why it was an honest mistake. Right? I deserve grace. I deserve mercy. It was an innocent mistake on my part. I didn't mean for it to happen like that. I really, it just, it, I, it's not because I hate you. It's not because I don't care about your feelings. It's, oops. But if it's the other person doing it to us, I demand justice. More than that, I demand vengeance. That's not loving people the way we want to be loved. In fact, Jesus told a couple of parables. The unforgiving servant, right? The king calls the servant in and says, hey, you owe me. This amount of money, and it's an amount of money that could never, ever, 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 ever be repaid, right? And the servant falls on his knees and he begs for mercy. Please give me one more chance to pay it off. And the king says, okay, I will show you mercy and forgive your debt. And the servant gets up and he's walking down the street and he sees somebody on the other side of the street that owes him five bucks. He grabs him by the neck and slams him against the wall and demands that five bucks now and beats him, Right? And the king hears about it. That's us, folks. That's how we act. Not like the king, who shows us mercy for a debt we can never repay. We act like the servant who was forgiven, but then we demand justice when we're wronged. It's not how we should be. Let me go back to Paul's words here. Love one another with brotherly affection. Not only should we uh, in, <laughs> love one another, agape, with brotherly affection, phileo. Not only should we love each other and seek the best for each other, but we ought to try to like each other too. That's hard, isn't it? I'm not being honest because she's not here. I've said this to her myself, face to face. There are times that I love Steph, but I don't like her. Right? Be honest. Paul says we should love each other with brotherly affection. We should not only love each other, but we should like each other. We should... (laughs) 
We should argue with each other about being kind to one another. You ever (laughs) outdo somebody in showing honor? You ever get to a door at the same time somebody else does, and you both open the door and then insist the other one go through first? That should be the source of our arguments in the church. That should be what the world sees when they look at the church. When When the unsaved person says, I don't go to church, it ought to be because they argue about who opens the door for you. Not because we're a bunch of hypocrites. And it's not arguing about, well, you should open the door for them, or you should open the door for them. It's, no, I open, no, you go first. No, you go first. Waiting at a stop sign for the other person to go. Waving them on. Come on. No, you, come on. No, no, you were here first. Come on. No, the law says you have the right of way. Come on. Right? That's how we ought to act. Yes, we ought to cause traffic jams because we're trying to be too kind to people. Not because we're demanding our own way. That is outdoing one another and doing good. Paul's writing this to a church that as far as we know, we have no historical record that the church in Rome had any of the issues that caused him to write to the churches in Corinth or Galatia or Ephesus or Thessalonica. The church in Rome didn't have any of the big problems. The church in Corinth, they had all of the big problems, right? If there was something they could screw up, they they screwed it up. That's why Paul wrote Corinth. The church in Galatia, they just missed the gospel. So Paul wrote to them. The church in Thessalonica, they were afraid that they had missed Jesus' return. The church in Ephesus, they had people that were leading the church astray. In Rome, we don't have any historical evidence that that kind of stuff was going on. And yet Paul tells them, don't be hypocrites, love each other genuinely, try to outdo each other in showing affection, like one another. Why would he write all of that if they didn't have any issues? Because the one thing that they did have was people. And Paul understood people. If we're left to our own devices, if God doesn't tell us how we're supposed to act, guess what we're going to do? We're going to be hypocritical. We're going to be selfish. We're going to hate other people and love only ourselves. That's our natural bent. We will be selfish, proud, arrogant, unforgiving in dealing with other people. We'll give lip service to loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. You ever find yourself doing that? We get lazy. And so Paul says, don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. It's a good word. Slothful. You ever see a sloth move? I will t- yeah, exactly. I will tell you, whether you're the kind of person that watches movies or not, uh, there's, there's a movie out there, an ar- a cartoon movie called Zootopia. One of the best illustrations of the sloth is at the DMV. All the people working at the DMV are the sloths. So they're trying to get the sloth to look up a license plate. And he types like everybody's parents.
Paul says don't be slothful. But be, be what? Be fervent in spirit. Don't be slow. Be fervent. What does that word fervent bring to mind when we think fervent? Fired up. Eager. Like on top of things. We, we have a, 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 an NCO at work who came in. He, the only thing, he, he's a, a Tasmanian devil in uniform. He came in and he's just spinning all over the place. And he's, he's things that needed to be done that haven't been done because we haven't had people to do them. He's like, oh, I'll do that and I'll do that. And that, 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 that. He goes home at the end of the day and I'm tired. That's fervent. But see, we can be fervent in the stuff that serves us, right? And we can be lazy in the stuff that takes care of other people. That's not how we're supposed to be. We need to be fervent in how we serve God. Now, remember told, uh, how I told you I was having a hard time with joy this week? The, the two people that passed, one is a man that I only met once. Nerd that I am, I had him beside my Bible. Dr. R.C. Sproul. He shaped my understanding of Scripture, my understanding of theology, the nature of God, the role of preaching and teaching within the church. The reason I am standing here Today is because of his teaching. Yeah, he did. But he equipped me to do what I do. Yes, he passed this week on Thursday. The other, a very, very, very dear friend of ours that we've known for the last 13 years, uh, devoted her life to caring for children as a school teacher, daycare director, youth ministry, children's ministry more years than I've been alive, minister of music, teaching, compassion, and most of all, with the love of Christ. And that was Miss Lynn Greer. She's been up here before. She plays the piano. Those two people illustrate what Paul wrote in this chapter. Their love was real. R.C. was a philosophy genius, was a theological genius, and there were times that his teaching not only didn't put the cookies on the bottom shelf, but he took a forklift and put them up on the top shelf of the warehouse rack. But his love for people was real. He was a pastor. He was a teacher. They both hated what was evil.
They were both fervent in spirit. Their love was genuine. Now, I'll tell you, none of this stuff is perfect. They didn't do these things perfectly, okay? I, I saw Lynn get ugly with people, all right? We, we played together in the praise band at Bay Vista for a number of years, and I saw her unleash on one drummer, that, that poor guy. I thought he was going to have to extricate some drumsticks when she got done with him. And I'm pretty sure that R.C. had the same issues because he was a person. So I'm not saying they did this perfectly, and I don't idolize them in the fact that, that they were human beings. But they were consistent in the time that I've known them. They loved their brothers and sisters in Christ beyond the lovableness of that person. Even in the face of theological differences, they didn't resort to name-calling or tearing other people down. Both of them ministered to folks up until the moment that they passed. In the days leading up to their passing, Lynn's been in the hospital for close on a month now. Uh, They moved her to rehab a couple of weeks ago. R.C.'s been in hospice for about a week, week and a half before he passed. Complications from emphysema and and whatnot. But in spite of that, both of them demonstrated joy. In fact, a week... Before R.C. passed, he gave a message. It's posted out online. I haven't read it. Don't know if I can bring myself to right now. Um, He posted a message that, that just I've seen described as one of his best. Even as they suffered, they rejoiced. They rejoiced in the hope that they had. That they knew, no matter what they were going through now, just like Job said, I know my Redeemer lives, and in that day I will see Him. They knew. They didn't hope. They didn't cross their fingers and rub their four-leaf clover and lucky rabbit's foot. They knew. And so they had joy. Even in their suffering, because they knew, like Paul said in the passage that we looked at the last couple of weeks, that that suffering produced endurance. Paul says, run the race that's before you, right? That race is a marathon. It's a lifelong marathon, and it's got struggles, and it's got hills, and it's got valleys, and it's got challenges. And we're supposed to rejoice in that suffering because it produces endurance to make it to the end of the race. It produces character, which produces hope.
Verse 12 of this passage, Paul says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Never doubted that if Lynn said she was praying for you, she was praying for you. Never a doubt. And it wasn't just for the people that they liked. They prayed for the people they didn't like. And it wasn't one of those prayers, God, please get them. You see, both of them, both of them have shown the true meaning of joy. They weren't perfect. They weren't sinless by any stretch. But they knew the joy of serving the Savior, who doesn't leave us to do this on our own. Probably the only reason. No, there's no probably about it. So Wednesday, when I normally sit down and work on my notes for the sermon, Wednesday I wasn't able to because I had schoolwork that had to be turned in on Wednesday. Had I done this sermon on Wednesday, it would have been completely different because the two of them passed on Thursday. And so because I had schoolwork due on Wednesday, I wasn't able to get to my sermon until Friday because Thursday there was no writing going to happen. It just wasn't going to be. But were it not for the fact that I know, like they knew, that we have that hope, that we have that faith, and it's not my faith. My faith is meh. My faith is, is, is minuscule. I have faith that came from somewhere else. Right? Remember last week we talked about faith? Ephesians 2, 8. Right? We're saved by grace through faith. And that faith is not your own, lest any man should say that I have a reason to brag. Right? So because I have faith that God gave to me, because I have hope, in seeing Jesus face to face because I know and I can trust this word that promises that he will never leave us or forsake us, then I know that someday when I close my eyes and I open them again in Jesus' presence, I'm going to be wandering around up there and I'm going to bump face first into R.C. Sproul. And I might say, hey, remember when you signed my Bible? And I'm going to bump into Lynn Greer. And I'm probably going to get the biggest hug I've ever had in my life. See, it's because I know. Because I have that certain hope that we talked about two weeks ago. And I have that faith that's a supernatural faith. That I can have that joy. Because I know Jesus. Even in spite of everything that has gone on this week, I can have that joy. You can have that joy. We can have that joy regardless of the stress, the hustle, the bustle, the grief, the loss, whatever we're going through because Jesus came the first time. And fortunately for us, even though we celebrate 
his birth, and we tend to focus on the little baby and, and the, the humble circumstances, and those pastoral pictures are just so beautiful. Luke reminds us that the baby grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with people. And he grew until he was a grown man. And then we're told that he lived a perfect life. Even though he was perfectly righteous, he died a sacrificial death to bring us reconciliation with God. And just in case, because God knows that we're slow, just in case we missed everything that happened, God raised him from the dead to show that death had been defeated. And that is what gives us joy. And so today we light that candle, the pink candle, that represents joy because we have that hope and we have that faith and we have the joy that comes from knowing too that one day we will stand before Jesus and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant as those two did this week.